I watched The Australian Wars by Rachel Perkins, and from my research it was an accurate account of what happened in Van Diemen's Land. I am indebted to the makers of this series for shedding light on this terrible history. Without knowledge and recognition of the Australian wars, we can't move forward. I also wish to acknowledge the research and struggle of ordinary First Nations people to have this history told. People from warriors of Aboriginal resistance, Bo Spearham, Callum Clayton Dixon, Jade Schlocky, Mariki Onis, and Periki Ruska also, I wish to acknowledge Sam Watson Jr., who wrote the Kadacha Sung, which was about the Australian Wars. Without them and other First Nations people, this story would be hidden from us all. I know this because my own family was involved in the genocide of Aboriginal people in the early days of Van Diemen's Land colony and then later in far north Queensland. Edward Kerr was the first manager of the Van Diemen's Land Company when the Australian Wars took place in the northwest of what is now known as Tasmania. His family house is depicted in Rachel Perkins' film. It is called Highfield House and overlooks the nut, what First Nations people call monete. Highfield House was built by convict labour for the Van Diemen's Land Company on land stolen from Aboriginal people by the Crown. The Kerr family resided there from 1825 till they left for Port Phillip Colony in Victoria in 1842. At his death in 1850, Edward Kerr was referred to as the father of separation. The colony of Port Phillip was separated from the colony of Botany Bay and by 18, the 1850s Australia's federated structure had begun taking shape. As early as 1824 Edward Kerr had identified the owners of the land but could not fully comprehend that he had stumbled across an ancient civilization with its own dreaming a people that managed the land and cultivated its plants for food and medicine. The Australian Wars Before and during the so-called Black War commenced by Governor Arthur, Edward Kerr offered a bottle of gin or rum for heads of Aboriginal people. To my eternal shame, Kerr was also involved in the massacre at Cape Grim when he turned a blind eye to at least one lot of murders of Aboriginal people and downplayed others. He said, as magistrate, I now have no doubt whatever that our men were fully impressed with the idea that the natives were there only for the purpose of surrounding and attacking them, and with that idea it would be madness for them to wait until the natives showed their designs by making it too late for one man to escape. I considered these things at the time, for I had thought of investigating the case, but I saw first that there was a strong presumption that our men were right, and second, if wrong, it was impossible to convict them, and thirdly, that the mere inquiry would induce every man to leave Cape Grim. 
Kerr wrote this to the directors of VDL on the 2nd of January 1828. Kerr later wrote to the company's directors about the genocide. My whole and sole object was to kill them, and this because my full conviction was, and is, that the laws of nature and of God and of this country all conspired to render this my duty. It would have been good. It would have alarmed the natives, prevented them from attempting our huts again, made them keep aloof, given them a lesson they would have long remembered. As to my expression of wish to have three of their heads to put on the ridge of the hut, I shall only say I think it certainly would have the effect of the tearing of some of their comrades, of making the death of their companions live in their recollections, and so extend the advantage, the example made of them. That was a letter that was included and quoted in Ian McFarlane's work, Aboriginal Society in Northwest Tasmania. Lieutenant Governor Arthur declared martial law on the 1st of November 1828, thereby allowing roving parties to shoot or capture Aboriginal people to take the original owners off-country for resettlement elsewhere. Edward Kerr was in the far northwest and was at odds with Lieutenant Governor Arthur in Hobart over expanding the grant of land to graze the VDL sheep. Kerr was withholding information from Arthur about the massacres at Cape Grim. When Arthur was told by the VDL superintendent, Alexander Goldie, that Aboriginal losses were very high and that shepherds had taken a whole tribe by surprise and massacred 30 of them and threw them down a cliff, then Arthur dispatched George Augustus Robinson as his emissary to investigate. Later, between 1832 and 1835, Robertson set about removing from Cape Grim those Aboriginal people who had survived the massacres. Robertson also used lies, deception and feigned concern for their welfare to achieve the purpose set by Arthur. The Australian Wars and Terra Nullius What I didn't understand is how the settlers and their courts could claim Terra Nullius and, at the same time, wage war against the original owners as described so eloquently by Henry Reynolds in the Australian Wars. Was this an early version of Doublethink? My brother John Kerr, a retired lawyer, wrote this. I see Robinson as a Lawrence of Arabia character in that he establishes relationships and uses them to betray people. His feigned concern for the Aborigines was to establish and maintain his position with Governor Arthur and the Colonial Office, who in turn had feigned concern and never confronted the central truth that the invasion was unlawful under international law at the time, under British law and under Aboriginal law. The consequent theft of land and destruction of culture were always going to result in justified resistance. The illegality was papered over by the barefaced and outrageous lie which became known as Terranullius. The consequences persist to this day. End of quote. Henry Reynolds' book, Truth-Telling History, 
Sovereignty and the Uluru Statement explains the myth of Terra Nullius in this way. Treating the continent as uninhabited was a convenient fiction which permitted the British to claim the land. However, this was a nonsense because when Cook claimed it for the Crown, he did not have the intention to settle, which was a requirement of international law at the time. When Philip, Governor of New South Wales, arrived in with the intention to settle, his claim to the whole continent, perhaps excluding what was to become Western Australia, was also unlawful because his capacity and intention was only to settle around Sydney Cove. Even that claim was unlawful because when he arrived, he ascertained immediately that the land was inhabited and the original basis of a right of claim to Sydney Cove and surrounds was false. Ian Kerr, 4PR, Voice of the People. Always was, always will be. Let's go out with a song by Paddy McHugh, Gin Sleep. Camilleroy Highway near the town of Bobby Bright There's a little truck stop there, most travellers pass by Occasionally the weary or those who need to take a leak Will stop beside this spot By the name of Jim's Leap is a cliff face, it's a mighty wall of stone Left high above the plain by our volcano years ago There's a little sign there tucked underneath its face That tells all who read it How Jim's Leap got its name story that the sign reads it's the story that's best known about a Corey, Juliet and Romeo There's two forbidden lovers fled from the anger of their tribe and from the top yeah hand in hand they both did take Oh, but the other version of the tide you'll hear whisper around the traps Now a bunch of local farmers, they taught a lesson to the blacks They rounded up their women and they marched them to the top And they gave them there a choice To jump or to be shot I'm not claiming to bear witness I know history goes deep But if asked to pick a story I know which one I'd believe Cause black blood flies all over And that river, it runs deep No matter what the signboard reads Underneath Jim's leaf Underneath Jin's Lee